Hello, I'm Emma Kennedy. Welcome to Why, the podcast that asks the big questions about science, from what's in the outer reaches of space to what's happening inside our very own cells. Psychologists say that memory is critical to human function. We simply can't do anything without it. So surely it would be counterproductive for the brain to create false memories. But that happens a lot. In fact, it's really common, which is reassuring as it's happened to me more than once. Today in Why, we're asking, why do we remember things that never happened? There's a process called confabulation, where our brains fill in gaps in our knowledge or understanding to help us make better sense of the world. So in this case, we remember things that never happened to help our memory become more manageable. However, that's not the only explanation. False memory syndrome distorts memories so we remember events that never occurred at all, not just to fill in gaps. It's also not because some of us can't remember things as well as others. In 2013, a study at the University of California used two groups of people, those with a normal memory and those with a highly superior autobiographical memory. They're the people with the uncanny recall for dates and event associations. Incredibly, both groups produced the same amount of false memories. Now, I have a very vivid memory. In it, I went to a house with a friend. I'm in my early 20s. The house belongs to either my friend's boss or a family member. In the garden, there's a kidney-shaped swimming pool. The shallow end ebbs downwards like a beach. It's the greatest swimming pool I've ever seen. At the end of the garden, there's a tall wall. I can hear people on the other side of it. I remember swimming in the sunshine and floating, staring up at the sky. It was bliss. But I have another memory that incredibly adds to the first one. So in the second memory, I'm on a walk on the Regent's Canal. Halfway in, I look up and realise I'm looking at the other side of the wall, at the bottom of the garden with the pool. Nothing particularly significant about either memory, you might think, except... I don't think either are true. A few months ago, I started asking friends whether they were the person I'd been with. I spent two hours on Google Earth scanning the course of the Regent's Canal. There isn't a single house with a pool that backs onto it. In my mind, I swam in that pool. I walked past it on the other side. It's a memory that returns to me again and again. But if it didn't happen, why am I remembering it? So what is going on? Why do I have such a vivid memory of a swimming pool that doesn't exist? I mean, some people would say that you can enhance your memory by recreating the context that you experienced it. But how do we know whether everyday memories are correct or not? The truth is we don't. Dr Sarita Robinson is Associate Dean in the School of Psychology and Humanities at the University of Central Lancashire. 
memory is what makes us. So we remember things from our past and they influence our behaviour in the future. We might bring stored memories into our heads when we're trying to think of new behaviours or responses to things in our present. And we also have memory which is perspective. So things that we need to remember to do in the future or things that we you know, would like to experience. And we have that memory of wanting to put an action plan in together in order to do something in the future. So memory has a lot of different functions. It helps us with our past and our identity. It helps us with our present and what we're doing, but it also has that future aspect as well. So take us inside the brain, the biology of it. Which parts govern the function and creation of memory? Well, no part of the brain sort of works in isolation, but the areas of the brain that we think are specifically related to storing memories are the hippocampal areas, and these are in our temporal lobes. And it's really a very deep structure. And so hippocampus means seahorse, so it's sort of seahorse shapes. I mean, you have to squint a bit to see that, but it's these hippocampal structures that then help us to retain the memories. And we know that, for example, there have been very famous case studies like the case study of HM where they removed part of those hippocampal areas to control condition, in this case, epilepsy. And from that point on, HM wasn't able to lay down new memories. So we know that the hippocampal areas are very important for memory function from you know, case studies of stroke or from the surgical procedures that were done in the past. We also know that they're quite important from some studies that were done in the sort of 1930s through to the 1960s by a guy called Penfold. And he basically was interested in electrical stimulation of the brain. So people that were having various operations in order to treat other conditions, while they were awake, he would sort of electrically stimulate areas of the brain, specifically these hippocampal areas, and then could get them to recreate memories so that it would actually stimulate memories that they had from the past. I suppose if I think of the brain as a sort of a great big receptacle of every experience you've ever had, and it chooses to store a lot of those experiences, when it's sort of shifting memories, where does that go in the brain? Where's the bin? I suppose an analogy I would use is um, some like pathways. So we have all these pathways that we create when we create these memories. And then sometimes we use those pathways a lot. So, for example, in my job, I might use those pathways for doing, I don't know, statistics quite often. And so I will walk down those pathways in my brain quite a lot to remember all the statistical tests that I need to run, et cetera, et cetera. But for example, say in, I don't know, however long it is, I retire and I don't need to do statistics anymore, then maybe I won't walk down those little pathways anymore. Maybe I won't go and have a look at the statistics. And those pathways could be overgrown, they'll get forgotten because I'm not using them. And I think it's the same with memory. Some of those connections we use and we strengthen, and other times they sort of fade away because we're not using them, we're not going back and revisiting those memories. So let's talk about confabulation. Because it seems odd to me that the brain creates false memories in order to make sense of memories. I, I can't get my head around that. So how does my memory of a swimming pool that never existed 
make sense of anything. Yeah, so it's really interesting that we have these memories that we know objectively, if we do some research, aren't true, these false memories. And one of the ways that we think that they're happening is if we go back to that idea of the little garden paths that we're walking down. So it might be that we're looking at a certain branch of our memories. So, for example, things that you would normally find in a kitchen. Yeah. And you go into the kitchen and you're looking around and then you come out of the kitchen and you try and recall everything that you saw in the kitchen. And you are adamant that there was an air fryer in there because every time you go into a kitchen these days, there's an air fryer. And that's because in your memory, in that little branch, in those little garden paths, when you walk down, the avenue, which is things I'd find in a the kitchen, there is a little branch that says air fryer. And so your expectation that you will see it is already there. And then the expectation afterwards is it must have been there. It must have been there because I was in a kitchen. I did read an article recently about false memories being used by advertisers to create that false experience effect in viewers. And there was a test group that was shown a very vivid advert about eating popcorn. And a week later, the people who were in the test group reported that they'd eaten the product when they hadn't. I wonder if you could explain more about how suggestibility can become a false memory and and why advertisers would do that. Yeah, I think they're just exploiting the fact that, that brains are quite lazy and have limited capacity. So actually, if we were to take in absolutely everything that occurred to us in minute detail and record it, we'd run out of processing power, basically. We'd be overwhelmed, so, yeah. We'd be overwhelmed, yeah. So they're exploiting this loophole, really. And actually, we're sort of remembering as much as we need to get by but no more so an example that i use which is from an experiment from the 1970s was if you ask people to draw a 10 pence so i say to them draw a 10 pence and i usually say with the, with the queen's head on because we, we have the, have the queen and we haven't got new coins yet so it's just like draw Queen Elizabeth's um, side of the of the coin and put in as much detail as you can. And most people will draw a circle, which is a good start, and they'll try and draw the Queen. That's about as far as they get. And they say, I know it's silver. Does it have 10p written on it? And I'm saying, oh, go and put on all the detail, put the, uh, you know, the pattern that goes around the edge, put the words in. And they're like, there are words. And people can try this, you know, get a sheet of paper out, draw a template and then go and have a look at one. Oh, and you'll be astonished at the amount of detail that's on there. It's things that we, we just don't attend to because we don't need to. The brain's fairly lazy. It'll remember what it needs to remember to know that that's a 10p and not a pound or a 5p or a 50p. But it won't remember anymore because that would be using up capacity. And it's a little bit like that with the the sort of false memories. You're remembering as much as you need to and your brain sort of has a little template of what it thinks you should be seeing, hearing, experiencing. So it will use that to fill in any gaps. But why does the brain need false memories? And can they ever be dangerous? 
Yeah, I mean, there are absolute issues with false memories. I mean, the brain doesn't really need them. It's just that when you ask your brain, you know, can I remember what I did on holiday? And it's like, okay, yeah, holidays, I've got a schema, we call schema, like a little set of memories that go along on expectations of, of what a holiday is. And it's like, well, I must have gone on a walk and I must have had an ice cream and I must have had a bit of a sunbathe and I must have gone out for dinner. So that's what your brain's then trying to find and sort of drag in from from those stored memories the second part of that question is really interesting i mean can they be dangerous and the answer is absolutely yes for example if you're the eyewitness and you're trying to identify somebody as being you know at the scene of a crime then actually you can misidentify people or you can create memories for things that didn't happen so you might say oh yes the car was definitely speeding when it hit the bollard and that's because in your brain if something hits a bollard it must have been going fast yeah because that's the sort of pathway that you have you know a little schema around what it is that um, happens when a car crashes well it must have been speeding While the brain creates these false memories to help us, more often than not, it's incredibly unhelpful and can even be dangerous. Memories are an integral part of what makes us us. So what happens if we can't make memories? So we see this a lot in older adults, perhaps those who are suffering from dementia. And in those cases, it's the case that the information is coming in, it might be processed, but the mechanisms to make those memories stay long term in people's brains has sort of stopped working. And that can be quite upsetting, certainly when you've got relatives with dementia who might not be able to hold on to, to, to conversations that you've only just had with them. So, you know, you get into a bit of a loop where they're asking you to repeat things over and over again because that memory hasn't consolidated it isn't stored it can also happen to us just generally when we're in high periods of stress so for example if you're in say a natural disaster or some sort of car incident you might have your brain working at full kilter to just get you out of that situation and to keep you safe and that extra processing that's needed to take that information rehearse it and store it isn't available because your brain's really just trying to keep you alive. I've got experience of this. I was in a car crash and I have no memory of it whatsoever. None. Nothing. Yeah, and we do see that very frequently. I mean, I research survival situations and one of the things that we frequently see is these impairments in memory. And so you find people that are three or four miles away from, say, a terror attack or a fire, and you ask them how they got there, and they absolutely have no idea. Their brain was just really 
geared to keeping them alive. And so all of the processing was going on trying to respond to this rapidly unfolding event, and none of it was being used to carefully manage and record because that wasn't as critically important as just getting the heck away. Why is it that the brain decides that it wants to get rid of trauma? I think sometimes the brain will protect us and so it will try and sort of not record some of the information that perhaps might be traumatic. But actually, we do see the flip side of that. And we see people with conditions like post-traumatic stress disorder, where actually they can't keep the memories of trauma at bay. And actually, they are in a position where they're re-experiencing or they have intrusive thoughts about the traumatic event. So we do see that flip side, actually. Sometimes, yes, memories will fade out if we don't keep rehearsing them. But on some occasions, such as traumatic memories, they can be very vivid and very impactful. And it can be very hard for people to actually come away and stop attending to them. I suppose the thing I'm interested in is what that balance is within the brain for remembering things to keep you safe, like don't put your hand in a flame, and then wiping the slate clean so you don't hold on to that trauma. How does it know where the line is between, no, you need to remember this and no, you don't need to remember this? I wish it was so precise that we could actually govern it. I wish it was so wonderful that you could say, do you know what? I want to forget about that very horrendous relationship I was just in (laughs) and I want to stop myself from ever thinking about it again. I'd pay for that. (laughs) I think people would. Um, However, it isn't quite that straightforward. I mean, it is really important that we remember things that have caused us harm because if we didn't remember, for example, that putting your hand in a flame cause you know pain and and that sensation of burning then actually we would just do it over and over and over again however as you say sometimes it's important that we don't attend to memories that perhaps are upsetting or perhaps have been traumatic and that's very difficult sometimes the brain will shut down and try and protect you from it and it will store it away sometimes it might be that you have been in a very high state of arousal when that memory came in and potentially you didn't store it in the correct position that's one of the things that they think might be happening with memories that aren't accessible that actually they haven't been recorded in the right area of the brain and that can cause problems later on because those memories can bubble up again at a different time. What factors are are memories affected by? Do genetics play a role in our ability to have effective recall? Yeah, there is some evidence to show that there are some genes that will predispose you to have better recall than other people. However, actually environmental factors are really important. So for example, sleeping is a good one. So if you want a better memory, then get a good night's sleep. There's nothing worse than trying to, you know, go to lectures or recall things when you're tired. We also obviously know that as we get older, memory seems to be impacted and people don't have the same sort of cognitive capacity to take in and retain information. 
So other environmental factors, I mean, for example, um, just diet exercise, all of those things, all those healthy sorts of lifestyle things don't just impact the health of your body, but also the health of your brain. And if your brain's healthy, you know, you've got good cerebral blood flow because you're exercising effectively. If you're eating all your, you know, your sort of purple foods that are oxygenating your blood that then are increasing the blood supply to your brain, then actually they'll boost cognitive performance in many areas, including memory performance. Going back to environmental stuff, does stuff like mood affect our memory? Yeah, absolutely. There's some evidence to show that if you are in a a low mood, so you've got maybe sort of slight depressive symptoms, then actually you will remember things from times when you have been depressed. So there's the idea of context-dependent memory which is that if you learn something in one environment, you'll recall it better in the same environment. So, for example, the classic study was done by Goddard and Badley, and they were looking at people recalling things that they'd learned underwater as opposed to recalling things above water. So when the context matched, i.e. they learned and recalled underwater they did better, or when they did it above water and recalled above water, they did better. But when they mismatched, so they recalled something that they'd learned underwater, above water, then their memory was worse. So matching the context in which you have learned something is important. And I've done some research which looked at mood contexts. So if we create, and we did this by showing people horror movies, a sense of sort of anxiety, um, then when you learn something in that anxious state, you're more likely to recall it to a higher level if you also do that in an anxious state. What points, talking about horrible and horrifying things, but do we know at what point something we experience is is sort of marked as a memory that we keep or destroy? Oh, it's very tricky. There's no one set response to that. And, And if anybody really knew which memories we were going to keep and which ones we were going to lose, they would be on to a winner, really. But what we do know is there are things called flashbulb memories, where we have a really vivid memory for something that we've experienced, which is much more vivid than anything else in our lives. Flashbulb moments for me would be around September 11th. So I can remember exactly where I was when I heard the sort of devastating news about the terror attack. Also about the, say, the the death of Michael Jackson. I know exactly where I was when I heard that news or Princess Diana. I can tell you, you know, whose house I was in, who I was with, what we'd done that morning, how we heard the news. And I couldn't tell you anything else that happened 25 years ago on any particular day. But that moment when um, I learned that Princess Diana was no longer with us is is very marked. It's like a, what we call a flashbulb memory. Yeah, because I, I can remember as of age three, sitting up in bed and watching the moon landing. My dad came and woke me up and, and, and brought a portable television up to my bedroom and, and made me watch the moon landing. But I struggle to remember what I was doing on any given day last week if I don't look at my diary. So wh- why is it that, that some memories linger longer than others or imprint, I suppose, so strongly? Yeah, so we think that the flashbulb memories imprint so strongly because 
and there are two hypotheses here. The first is that there are actually neurochemical changes that are happening. And so we have releases of things like cortisol, which is a glucocorticoid, which then help to solidify that memory um, deep in those hippocampal structures. Or the other hypothesis is that actually with a flashbulb memory, you rehearse it a lot. You think about it a lot. You know, it was such an important event when you were watching that moon landing when you were three, that maybe when you were five, you were recalling it to somebody else. Or maybe when you were 10, you were saying, oh, I remember when I was three and and my dad or maybe your dad said to you, oh, when you were little, I brought the TV into your room. And that's why you've got that very strong memory, because it's been rehearsed over and over and over again. So how can we tell a real memory apart from a false one? If I go back to my swimming pool story, there is a bit of me that thinks, well, no, hang on, that's not a false memory. That that actually did happen. But I have zero proof that it did. So I have to deduct that it's a false memory, but I have no idea whether it is real or it was a false memory. I mean, some people would say that you can enhance your memory by recreating the context that you experienced it. So you you might want to go to the area or try and smell a smell that was present at the time, and maybe that will help unlock a more accurate memory is one of the ideas and and the police do this when they have the sort of cognitive reinstatement interviews etc but how do we know whether you know everyday memories are correct or not the truth is we don't we can't trust our own minds not 100 percent. i would say no we can use objective reports to double check things we can look at other people's ideas of what happened to try and get a sense of you know what might have actually occurred but yes we have to have our memories peer reviewed i think we do that quite a lot anyway don't we you know my kids are always telling me i've got things wrong <laughs> I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now?, the politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. So the key takeaway is however much we think we know ourselves, we can't really trust our own brains, nor can we be entirely sure which part of our brain is in charge. So if in doubt, double check. So that's it for us today on Why. Thank you to Dr. Sarita Robinson. Oh, thanks for having me. I still think that swimming in a pool existed, despite all this. So if you own a kidney-shaped pool in London where the shallow end shifts softly downwards like a beach, please put me out of my misery. 
We'll be back with more scientific anomalies, conundrums and weird facts soon. Don't forget to follow the podcast so you don't miss an edition and follow us on social media too. Links are in the show notes. I've been Emma Kennedy, asking... Why? See you next time. Why was written and presented by Emma Kennedy. The lead producer was Anne-Marie Luff and the audio producer was me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. Artwork is by James Parrott. Theme music is by DJ Food. Why is a Podmasters production.